are going to uh, take this journey over the next five weeks of talking about missions. It's a series called What on Earth is God Doing? And I don't know about you, but just think for a second what you think about when you hear the word mission or missions, especially those of you that have grown up like me in the church and you've, had, and you've been exposed to kind of missions and missionaries uh, for, for, for a number of years. For me, when, you, when I hear missions, I immediately think of a guy in a grey suit for some reason, standing up with one of those old school slide projectors. Do you know the ones? The old click, 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 you know, putting up photos on the screen, some special little missions report or something in a Sunday morning service, and he's babbling on about some place that I've never heard of on the other side of the world. Uh, he's talking about people whose names I don't know. I'm not particularly interested in them. Uh, he's talking about being a missionary, doing all this stuff, and it might be really good stuff, but it never really felt, and this is just me, it never really felt like it was intersecting with my life much at all. Uh, missions always seemed to be this thing that was done by missionaries, elite people, special people, somewhere out there uh, doing the special work of missions, and the rest of us basically stayed home, and, and what did we do? Gave money to the missionaries, I suppose. That was our job. And that's kind of what missions was for me, uh, anyway, growing up. Maybe you've got a different perception. Maybe you've got a different connotation. Maybe a more positive one. Hopefully you have. Uh, think for a second of the texts, the biblical texts that you think of when you hear missions. Any, any that come to mind? Which, which one? Matthew 28, yeah, the Great Commission. That's a classic. Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's probably the number one. We think missions, we go there. Um, Acts 1. Maybe another one where Jesus sends out his disciples and says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. These are the typical passages that we go to when we think about missions. What we want to do over the next few weeks is just try and broaden that out a little bit. And obviously those passages are critical, uh, but a lot of the time we have missions in a kind of a box and we don't think very holistically about it, and we don't think very broadly about it. And my, my real purpose over the next five weeks is to pull up to a higher altitude with all of this stuff and to ask the question, what on earth is God doing? What is God doing? What has he been doing? What is he doing? And what is he going to do from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to new creation? The whole story, the big story in five weeks. Can we do it? Possibly. Maybe. We're going to see if we can, because I think that's the way to understand mission. Ultimately, the mission's not ours, right? It's God's. We are on mission with God, and so the best place to start is for us in understanding what God is up to on planet Earth. So we're not going to start this morning with Matthew 28. We're not going to start with Acts chapter 1. We're going to start with Genesis 1. We're going to go back to the beginning, because that's where the story starts. That's where God's mission on Earth starts. So if you have a Bible, flick over to Genesis chapter 1. It's just inside the inside cover of the Bible, it's actually quite hard to hold the place there because the inside cover keeps closing. I don't know whether you've had that problem. You probably don't care. But um, Genesis chapter 1, why don't, we, why don't we read together? Can we read as a church these, these verses so profound at the beginning of the Scriptures here? Uh, the first, just the first two verses of Genesis, okay? Um, should we go with the TNIV translation just for unity here? Um, here we go. One, two, three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's a lot we could say about that passage. 
And really what I want to do just for a couple of minutes is, is stroll through the first couple of chapters of Genesis, just make some observations. We're not going to linger particularly long on any of them. Just make some observations and then we'll draw some conclusions in a minute. Uh, one of the things Mike drew out as he was speaking here a couple of, uh, the last couple of weeks is how the whole being of God, the, all three persons of the Trinity, are involved in creation. You remember that? The Father is the origin, the ground, the source of creation, the one from whom it all flows. And the Son, how's He involved? He's the Word. We find this out later, really, when you get to John chapter 1, the Word, the Logos, spoken. So when God said, let there be light, you can, in a sense, picture the Son, Jesus, as the Word being spoken, the agent of creation. And then you find this wonderful reference to the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Some of the imagery behind that is, is actually the, the image of dancing, the Spirit of God dancing over the waters. I love that idea. So there you have Father, Son, and Spirit, all involved right from the beginning, first two verses of the entire Bible. And so let me throw this question at you up front. Is creation spiritual? That's, I think that's a key question because what we typically do as Western Christians is we divide our lives and our world up into two categories, the spiritual and the physical. That's how we often think, the spiritual and the physical. And we put in the spiritual category the things that we think really matter, things like our heart maybe, our soul, our, our spirit, depending on how you divide up the, the human person. Uh, our, our, our relationship with God, right, goes in the spiritual category. Uh, that's, where, that's why we think about our spiritual life, our spiritual growth. You hear the phrases? Because we want to separate that out from the, the non. We've got a category over here in our minds called the non-spiritual. And usually that's physical or material stuff. Our bodies, external behaviors maybe go in here. Typically the earth goes in the physical camp. And here's why we think that the earth sometimes isn't so important because we want to classify it as the physical, as the non-spiritual, therefore as the non-valuable. Because if only the spiritual matters and the earth isn't in that category, then what value is it to anybody? This is often how we divide up the world. When you get to the scriptures though, spiritual doesn't mean non-physical. It doesn't mean non-material. It means anything born of the Spirit of God. It means anything that's the fruit of the Spirit of God or that's shaped after the Spirit, that's fashioned after the Spirit. And so if that's our definition of spiritual, is the earth spiritual? Yes, Father, Son, Spirit, in the first two, two verses of the Bible, show up and breathe into being this creation, the earth, the, the cosmos. It's the work of the Spirit of God. It is the master creation of the, the master creator. It is incredibly spiritual, not divine, don't make that mistake, creation is not divine, it's not to be worshipped, but it is spiritual. It is valuable to God, it is precious to Him, and it is directly the result of the creative, energizing, empowering work of the Holy Spirit, right? We're tracking? Okay. Now, Genesis 1.31, flick over just a few verses, and let's look at that. This is God now getting to the end of the whole process of creation, the end of the sixth day of creation. He steps back from his work in verse 31 and, he, and says this, God saw all that he had made and it was, what are the two words? Very good. Very good. He's, previously he's sometimes uh, said good, but here when the whole thing is, is brought to a conclusion, God steps back and says, very good. You know, and this is not like boasting, this is not arrogant pride. This is God who is entitled 
to look on his created work. It's like a master chef just having prepared this gourmet dish, stepping back and looking, just admiring, licking his lips and saying, very good. This is very good. So creation is spiritual. Creation is very good. It is inherently good because it is the work of God. And then here's where we come in, chapter 2, down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. You find that when humanity enters the scene, God sets up this relationship with us and with his creation. It's a bit like a landlord-tenant situation. Those of you that are renting or those of you that are landlords will understand this. Uh, tenancy brings with it responsibilities and it brings with it privileges, right? So the earth is the Lord's. Psalm 24 tells us that explicitly. The whole earth is the Lord's. The whole earth is the property. It's his rightful property. He owns the title deed. It is his from start to finish, the length and breadth and depth of it. Everything is the Lord's. And he places humanity here really as his tenants. And he says, you, this is yours now. You are able to multiply and inhabit the earth and, and use it for food and dwell here and enjoy the bounty of my creation. But with that privilege comes responsibilities to work the earth, that is maintain it, and to care for it, to look after it. Just like when you have a tenant, if you have a property, you have tenants in there, you're going to say to them, now look, you've got to keep, you've got to mow the lawns, don't graffiti the walls, don't put your foot through a, a, a wall or something, you know, you've got to look after the property, make it look nice, treat it as if it were your own. God makes us his stewards of creation. That's how the relationship goes. And then as the story keeps moving forward, you find we get to Genesis chapter 3, and the whole thing spirals downwards very quickly. Humanity rebel against God, they disobey Him, they disobey the one and only instruction He gives them not to eat from a certain tree, they turn to their own desires, their own wants, they, they turn to themselves rather than to God, and so sin comes into the world, the entrance of sin into God's good creation. And what's interesting is when you get to Genesis 3 and God pronounces this judgment on humanity, this curse in a sense on humanity because of their sin, it doesn't just involve a curse on people. It also involves a curse on the land. The earth itself, creation itself, is also brought under this curse that God pronounces because of the entrance of sin into the world. He talks about the land being now hostile and opposing people. It's going to give you trouble. It's not going to work for you. It's going to work against you. The, 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 the thing to grasp here is that sin is not just this personal, individual problem. We, we often want to whittle it down to that, that sin is this personal, and all it means, well, not all it means, but we, we want to just think about sin as stealing, lying, cheating, murder, adultery, those kinds of individual, moral, commandment-breaking things. In Genesis chapter 3, the picture you get is that sin is a cosmic problem. It has thrown out of kilter, out of alignment, out of relationship with God, not only individual men and women, but the entire cosmos. The entire creation, the earth, the entire cosmos is affected by sin. And creation itself is now out of relationship with God, in a sense, not in the same way that human beings are, because we relate uniquely to God, but in a very real sense, and we'll get to a greater picture of this in Romans 8 in a minute, but, but creation is enslaved by sin, just as humanity is enslaved by sin. Sin, we need to think about it as universal, cosmic, and affecting God's entire good creation. Creation's been marred and tainted 
by sin. And it's worth remembering that when you see all the effects of sin in the world today. Often we want to just think, well, sin is, you only see sin when you see someone consciously and deliberately breaking a moral commandment. Maybe, but if sin is cosmic and universal in its scope, then everything that is wrong with the earth, as well as humanity, society, and culture, is ultimately the result of Genesis chapter 3, is ultimately traceable back to the fall when God pronounced this curse on humanity and on the land. So when you see today natural environments being destroyed just to make way for human overconsumption, this is ultimately traceable back to the problem of sin. It's not just this irrelevant issue. You see how we want to carve up the world, spiritual, non-spiritual? So we want to think, well, the earth, the environment, the ecological system, that, surely that doesn't matter. That's not in the spiritual category. But if everything is spiritual, if the earth is spiritual, and if it is very good, then when we see the environment being polluted just to make way for human industry, when we see people trampling the earth and degrading what God has called very good, then can we not trace it back and say, ultimately, this is an extension of the power of sin in the world? We need to move environmental issues back into the spiritual category because they are. Does God care? Well, if creation is spiritual and if the earth is very good and if God is our landlord and we are his tenants, then when we destroy and degrade and harm his good earth for no good reason, I think God does care. I think he cares as much as a landlord watching his tenant put a hole through the wall or turn a bedroom into a rubbish dump. I think God as the landlord looks upon that with grief and with horror sometimes because the earth is the Lord's. And we've got to be very careful we don't compartmentalize the world and, and convince ourselves that none of that stuff matters. All that matters is my own personal spiritual vertical relationship and communion with God over here. No, sin is more cosmic than that. And it's done more damage than that. When you get to the New Testament, what you start to see is God's plan for creation. What you start to see then are these signposts, these little hints of where creation is heading. And there is no better passage that bears this out than Colossians chapter 1. Flick over there if you, if you uh, can keep your thumb in Genesis 1. Oh, it doesn't really matter. Just flick over there anyway. This really is worth reading together. There's not too many other places in the Scriptures which give such a, an incredibly rich portrayal of what the cross of Christ has actually accomplished. And I, I partly read this out too because it mentions creation in the context of talking about Jesus and talking about the cross. Colossians 1.15 The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And here's the clincher, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether, on, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, friends, this is a much bigger picture 
of what happened on the cross than just God reaching down and saving individual men and women from their individual personal sin. Clearly that's central to what went on, but this is a greater vision. This is a broader vision of what the cross of Christ actually accomplished. It dethroned all the rulers, principalities, and powers of darkness. It, Paul tells us later in Colossians, it made a public spectacle of all the powers of evil everywhere at all times. Everything that stands against the will of God was dethroned and crucified and put to death on the cross. And through the cross of Christ, God says his plan is to reconcile to himself what? All things. Not some things. Not a few things not just spiritual things, and not even all people. The gender here is neutral. It's not masculine or feminine. It's neutral. God's plan through Christ was to reconcile to himself all things, things on earth, things in heaven. And to reconcile to himself means to bring everything back into a proper relationship with him to restore what has been broken. And it makes sense because if sin has a cosmic dimension to it, if, if, if the tentacles of sin have stretched out across the vastness of God's creation, then it's going to require a cosmic solution, isn't it? It's going to require a solution that is no less than the problem, which is why the cross of Christ penetrates to every dark corner where sin has got a hold. Not just the souls of individuals, but the entire cosmos. God's plan is not just to redeem and to save people, but to redeem and save His good creation, to redeem and to save and to reconcile all things to Himself. That's not universalism. That's not every single person's going to be saved at the end of time. It means that God's salvation extends beyond humanity to bring all things, the entire cosmos, everything that He once called very good, back into relationship with Himself and to establish new creation on earth for us to enjoy with Him. That's the, that's the scope of God's plan, which is why when people, sometimes we start talking about you know, environmental issues, people get a bit nervy, conservative Christians especially start to get a bit worried, we feel like you're sacrificing the cross, you, you, you're downplaying salvation by grace through faith and you're becoming some green freak, you know, look, I'm even wearing my flowery shirt, I've got to be some, some, some green tree-hugging hippie, you know, that's not the deal. In fact, I would argue that Colossians 1 gives, and, and, and a recognition of these environmental issues, actually give the, the cross more scope, more depth, more breadth, give you a bigger picture of what God's salvation has accomplished, that it is sweeping and universal. God's desire is to reconcile all things to Himself. And you see this picture again in Romans chapter 8, where, where Paul talks about this bondage that the creation is in. He says this, verse 20 of Romans 8, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And that's the reference to the fall where God brings this curse on the land. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. It couldn't be clearer that God has a plan that encompasses creation. Creation's enslaved, and what creation's longing for is not to be destroyed, not to be burned up and not to be thrown out, but to be redeemed. That the, 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 the fields and the hills and the mountains, in a sense, groan for their own liberation, for their own release from the bondage to sin that they are in, and they look to the day when one day God will make all things new 
That's why when you get to Revelation 21, final passage I want to read to you, right at the end of the story, you get this incredible picture, this incredible glimpse of what that day is one day going to be like. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And on it goes. The, the picture here is not of human beings flitting away to some far-off heaven when Jesus returns, but of heaven itself, that pictured as the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven to earth. Heaven and earth are married up in a sense at the end of time and the final resurrection and all things are made new. That's why in the very next verse, behold the one who sits on the throne, verse 5 says what? I am making all things new, not all new things. I am making all things new. See, God's not going to give up on this project that he once stood back from and declared it is very good. God's not going to give up on that. He's not going to quit. He's not going to abandon it. He's not going to say, oh, well, it didn't work out so well, did it? Sin's now in the world. Creation's been marred and destroyed. I guess once I called it very good, but now who really cares? No, God one day is going to redeem. God one day is going to restore everything that sin has tainted and eradicate everything that sin has destroyed. And creation itself is going to be set free from its bondage to sin. And it will be liberated. And heaven and earth will become one. Our bodies will be resurrected and we will enjoy the presence of the Lord on this renewed earth. So you see the salvation picture in the scriptures is just so much broader and richer, I think, than God saving you from your personal sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. Now, those things are central, but I would argue there's more to it. There's a bigger picture. The Bible sets before us a greater vision of the salvation that has been accomplished through the cross of Christ so in view of that whole sweeping vista of what God is doing from creation to new creation, where does this leave us? You see, if, if the scope of God's salvation, of his mission, is the whole earth, then that means the scope of our mission is the whole earth too. And this might, might not be what you expected to hear in week one of Missions Week, you know, because we typically think, well, it's going to be evangelism and church planting. And we'll get to all of that. But friends, we're starting at the biggest level. We're starting at the broadest level. The scope of God's mission field is the entire creation. And that means our mission is nothing less than partnering with God in the reconciliation of all things to the one who created them. Working with God in that Colossians 1 mandate of reconciling all things, things on earth and things in heaven, putting them back into their proper relationship to God. Of course, at the heart of all that is restoring the relationship between God and his precious human creatures and helping humans, people, find their way back into relationship with God. No one's denying that. No one's underplaying that. We'll spend time talking about that as the month goes on. But it's more than that. It is working with God to reconcile all things. You say, what does that mean? How can I reconcile other things to God? How can I be part of this? Well, let me give you an example. Are you ready? Have you ever thought about reconciling your household rubbish to God? See, immediately you just think that's ridiculous. I, you know, you never realized 
what, what, a, what a crazy tree-hugging, green bird-whistling freak that I really was, you know? That's, that's what happens because we think that is off the table. That is nothing to do with the Scriptures, right? That cannot be something that God is interested in. That cannot be anything spiritual at all. And you see, we're back to this dualism, spiritual-physical, and we've squarely removed all of these issues. And we've convinced ourselves that God doesn't care about what we might do with our household rubbish. And that, that has, that's nothing to do with my spiritual life. Friends, all of life is spiritual. Every single thing. And we do God a disservice, I think. We do the cross of Christ a disservice. When we carve it up and we compartmentalize and we say, well, God wants to redeem this part of my life, but not this. He wants to redeem whatever, my Bible study habits, but he doesn't want to redeem what I do with other areas of my life. You say, well, how does household rubbish possibly factor into God's thinking? Well, it doesn't really for us because we just put a bag of rubbish out on the, on the road and, and off it goes. But that rubbish eventually goes into landfills, which take up space, huge rubbish dumps. Things don't break down very easily. Things don't decay very easily that go into landfills. They last sometimes for hundreds of years. More and more space on the earth that God called very good being converted into rubbish dumps. I saw a statistic as I was preparing this message that Auckland, the Auckland region alone, puts enough rubbish into landfills to fill a rugby field to the, to the height of a 10-story building every month. You say, who cares? Well, my question is, does God care? Is it possible that if, every, that if creation is spiritual and if God called this earth very good, then he does care? when we put a massive footprint on his earth that can do damage and that can decay and that can unnecessarily destroy natural environments. I'm not talking about just using the earth's resources for our benefit, but when we use them in a way that's not renewable, when we live in a way that's not sustainable with the earth, when we live in a way that is disrespectful to the creation that God called very good, then I would argue God does care. God is our rightful landlord, does look at that, and he says, you are not fulfilling the tenancy agreement that I wrote up in the very beginning. And part of reconciling all things to God is our partnership, even in drilling down to these most basic and practical levels of helping to reconcile every area of our own lives, even our household rubbish, to God, as part of helping to put creation back into its right relationship with the God who created it. It means thinking about things like recycling, who ever thought we'd talk about recycling in church? See, once again, we think it's off the table. Friends, everything is spiritual. God wants to extend the implications of Christ into every area of our life. We're, I'm just starting out this journey, but figuring out that there's a lot more stuff that you can recycle, I never thought you could. It's not just Coke bottles. You know, you look on the bottom of packaging and, and all kinds of containers, you see that little recycling label, and there's a whole lot of stuff that can go in the recycling that can be reused and then isn't having a detrimental effect on the earth. It means thinking when we buy stuff, what is the flow-on effect to creation of this purchase? Do I really need to buy this and what's going to be left at the end? There's a company at the moment that is selling individually wrapped prunes. For the life of me, I don't know why you need to buy individually wrapped prunes. I mean, environmental or non-environmental, that's just silly. And individually wrapped prunes. So, so think... This, I think this is thinking biblically. It is thinking creationally. It is thinking holistically to think about what's going to be left and what implications will this have on God's good creation. How is this reconciling all things, Colossians 1, 
to God? Am I working toward that mandate or am I not? And friends, quite honestly, even if you really are not buying all this environmental stuff, it's even just good from the perspective of consumerism to think when you're walking through the supermarket and whatever other shop, do I really need it? Is it really helpful? Is it really beneficial? And to put it in environmental terms, I would argue just actually helps us become less enslaved to a consumer culture anyway. Because so much of the environmental problems we have are the result of a consumer society gone crazy. It's human overconsumption that puts such a burden on the land. And by alleviating that problem, we alleviate the burden from the land as well. And even if you do it for the reasons of being less